1: Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the December 16th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, Steve Pride sits down with portrait artist Don Bacardi in his Santa Monica, California home to talk about his work and his life with writer Christopher Isherwood. But first, in Storytellers, I sit down with Rich Valenza, founder and CEO of Raise a Child, an organization that finds and supports people who are interested in becoming foster and adoptive parents. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, There are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. So today in studio, we have Rich Valenza, founder and CEO of Raise a Child, founded in 2011 to make the process of fostering and adopting easier for the LGBT community. What was the impetus for the founding of this organization?
2: It really kind of happened based on my own experience. I got to an age where I decided, well, if I'm not in a relationship by this time, I'm going to go ahead and have a family anyhow. And for me, it always made sense to foster and adopt.
1: Where in the LGBTQ plus spectrum in our community, where do you fall in line?
2: So I'm a, I'm a gay man. I have, you know, been out since uh, I was about 27. i Might have been a little confused up until that time, but... You worked uh, things out. I worked things out. I found my way. So I was in relationships here and there, but nothing really that stuck. So I decided I'll give myself another five years when I reach 40. And if by 45, I'm not in a relationship, I'm going to go ahead and build this family on my own. Because, you know, for the holidays, I would go back to uh, see my family in central Pennsylvania And, you know, when I was in my 30s, my oldest brother, he had his kids just about fully grown. And then my next brother was raising his kids. And then my sister, who's younger than I am, she had a a child. It was like, hey, everybody's kind of passing me by. And I became the fun uncle from L.A. But it would be a lonely flight back from central Pennsylvania to L.A. when all of my family had each other. And they would go home, and I'd fly home alone.
1: You get to that point, you're now uh, 45. Right. And at the time, single. Yes. But very much available. <laughs> you know, that itch, that that desire to have a family that you can call your own, right? that can travel back and forth with you to those family gatherings back in central Pennsylvania and then travel with you back to L.A. so yeah. those flights aren't so lonely.
2: Right. And, you know, not only about me, also my desire to help kids. I have heard the stories of kids in foster care and the loss that they feel and the trauma that they experience. And I always thought that I had a good life that I could share with a child and that I could do what I could to help give them a different kind of life as well. So yeah, part of it is selfish. Part of it is not. Part of it is just wanting to feel that sense of parenting, to be a father, to really kind of experience life. You know, my family, my brothers, uh, my sister have, my parents have. To leave a legacy. Yeah. I started the process I remember it was a Saturday that probably halfway through training, because you have to go for several weeks, or at least you used to. They changed it now. But there was a time in class where we had to divide up into twos. And I was there as a single parent, and I got matched with a, a young woman that was a single mom. I can't tell you what our case study was, but I certainly remember the two women that stood up, they said... Our case study is that we have been raising a 15-year-old boy in foster care in our homes. The two women weren't related. They were just assigned together. And they said he had trouble at school, and he's come home from school one day, and he announces to us that he is gay. What would you do? And the one woman said, who was dressed very conservatively, She said, well, this is against my religion, so I would have to send him back to the system. I couldn't raise him, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And the other woman said, well, I'd have to turn him back too, because I have a 14-year-old son of my own that I gave birth to, and there's no way I'm going to allow that one boy to make my son gay. And I got a smile on my face, and I thought, The instructors are going to set these women right on the the laws in California and how things work. Instead, the three instructors kind of looked at one another, took pause, turned red in the face and said, well, okay, let's continue on. And they never addressed it. Just went right past it. They went right past it. And that might not have affected anyone else in the class of about 30 people. But it affected me.
1: But but it does reinforce those notions that being around gay people makes you gay. Yeah. Or that many religions talk disparagingly about the LGBTQ uh, community. Exactly. Yeah. So there you are. Perhaps the lone you know, a person of our community in that group, group, waiting for that moment for somebody to speak up and nobody spoke up. So what did that trigger in you?
2: When I decided to do this, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell my relatives back East. I didn't really tell a soul because I knew what I would hear from people, which was, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to take one of those kids in? You know,
1: one of those kids. Yeah.
2: What that did to me in class was I was kind of devastated through the rest of the day. And then for that whole week, I wasn't sure if I was going to go back the next Saturday. So I did go back. And in the final minutes of showing up into the, the classroom, I did run in there and I did finish. So jump jumped to my last day of training there. I had finished. I was driving home. And it was on an autumn day, kind of like today. Beautiful. I called my mother back home in Pennsylvania, and I said, Mom, what are you doing? Well, I'm watching the Penn State game. Did you see it? I said, no, I've kind of been busy on Saturdays. What have you been doing? I said, well, remember when I came out to you and you told me what a disappointment I was and how, you know, you were so upset that I'd never give you grandchildren? I'm calling you today to tell you that I'm going to make you a grandmother again. And there was a long pause on the phone. And I look at the flip phone because it's a few <laughs> few years ago. And we were still connected. And I said, Mom, are you there? And this wasn't playing out as at all like I had imagined.
1: So I? what's in your head? Those wheels are turning in her head. What do you think those wheels are saying?
2: My biggest fear was realized that when I came out to my mom, the things that she said to me were going to come out again. That's kind of what happened. When she finally spoke, she said, I guess I'm just afraid for you. I said, afraid of what? And she said, well, you're gay, and the county, the government's never going to give you a kid. And if they do, they're not going to give you a good kid. And those fears that I had all along in this process, the reasons I didn't tell anybody, came like and smacked me in the face.
1: This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with CEO and founder of Raise a Child, Rich Valenza.
2: Now jump to today. I've been in a relationship pretty much from a year after I met the kids, a year after they moved in, and my partner Jared and I have raised these kids. We have a son that is at the University of Redlands in his first year. He struggled some in his, you know, first semester there, but he's getting on track, and I'm getting the notices that um the bill is due for the second term for him there. So I guess
1: so he's, he's still enrolled. He's
2: still enrolled. I know that. And then our daughter, she's a senior in high school. We're going through that process, and thank God for uh, my partner Jared. We built this family, and. You know, the best thing, I guess, the perfect ribbon to wrap up that story with my mother happened years ago when the Supreme Court was deciding on marriage equality. and. 2015? Uh, yes. It was like the day before the court was going to, to rule on that. And my mother said, what do you think is going to happen in Washington? I said, you know, I have no idea. I have my hopes. But I've kind of learned over the years to skirt around this issue. My mother said, well, you know what, if those assholes in Washington could see what you and Jared have done with those kids, there would be no discussion. I'm really proud of what you've done with the kids. In that moment, all of the two bad experiences kind of were washed away that it had taken years, but my mother got there. My mother understood. It's that energy, it's that kind of thing that pushes me forward with Raise a Child to help other LGBTQ plus people realize their dream of building a family. Because anecdotally or the studies that have been done by the Williams Institute at UCLA or whomever, we as a community, we LGBTQ people have a special empathy and understanding for the trauma that these kids went through, not to parallel the experience of losing your family or being pulled away from your family. But many of us, in our own way, have experienced that rejection of our family, feeling the odd person out, whatever it may be. It's come up time and time again that these kids in foster care, we have this empathy, we have this passion to helping them. And LGBT parents, do everything possible, take advantage of all of the therapies, the benefits and all in order to help these kids realize their potential. And it makes me so proud to do this work that we do.
1: There is such grace and such dignity and such purpose in the work that you do. And I think of what are the things I'm thankful for, and right now I'm, just, I'm so thankful for spirits like you in this world who had the patience. And the belief and the determination to not turn that dial off in this particular instance. When it came to your mom, she said things that you didn't want to hear. She said things that you might have expected to hear. But over the course of time and through example, through literal actions, not just words, but actions, you stayed committed to who you are. The person she brought into this world, coupled all that together, over time, she saw what a wonderful parent you were becoming. And these beautiful children that you were bringing up in the world that you gave a chance, and she couldn't help but love them.
2: Yeah, for my mother, it's uh, rather simple, I kind of think. But I think my mother loves my kids a little more because my kids show her respect that I've been trying to teach them. My daughter ends every phone conversation with my mother saying, I love you, Grandma. And for my mom, that's all it takes. Uh, just melts her heart and keeps her coming back for more.
1: What I love about your organization, besides everything right now, <laughs> it's not just for the LGBT community, but that it's for all. Now, the successful uh, fostering and adoption assistant model that you created initially for our community is also working well for single straight women and men, for married heterosexual couples, and for communities of color. When did that start to emerge? So. It happened
2: about the same time in 2015 after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of marriage equality, and I pray that it stays that way. But at that time, a lot of LGBTQ organizations were wondering about, okay, now that we won that fight, what should we stand for? Where where should we go? What should our mission be? I would talk to the major organizations around the country and the leaders there and you know, find out what they had in mind. And it was a question, where are we going to get our funding? What should our next mission be? And for us, ever since we first started Raise a Child, we partnered initially with the Human Rights Campaign, a great organization, a national organization out of Washington, D.C., known also as HRC, We shared a common mission to help build families in the LGBT community, but from the very beginning, they funded us to do events with them in New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, in L.A., and we would do the campaigns. If you look around LA right now, you may see our streetlight banners around showing all kinds of families, uh, mostly LGBT families, but these are real families that Raise a Child has helped create. And so, in those first few years, we insisted that in New York City, when we did the streetlight banner campaign, we were going to feature a lesbian headed couple, a gay headed couple, and a heterosexual couple. Because my thought is if you want to talk equality, To people who don't know equality, you better show them equality. What better way to show equality than to honor a gay-headed family, a lesbian-headed family, along with a heterosexual-headed family? And we got into some arguments about that with HRC. No, we're not paying for that. We'll pay for the two, but we're not paying for the third. Whatever it was, we worked it out. That was kind of the start of it after the Supreme Court decision, we really welcomed more people. The idea that there are over 440,000 kids in the U.S. foster care system. Every year, there are more kids coming into the system because of the opioid epidemic.
1: Speaking of the opioid epidemic, you have a nephew in central Pennsylvania who started out in environmental law, but soon ended up kind of intersecting with the work that you do. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came to be?
2: So it's really kind of an amazing
1: story. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? We'll be right back with more of Rich Valenza from Race a Child after this quick break. It's time for Who Said
3: That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. While considered one of the world's greatest pianists of the 20th century, he sought treatment to cure his homosexuality. By all accounts, it didn't take. Born in the Ukraine in 1903, he was trained at the Kiev Conservatory. Quickly rising to fame as a bravura performer, with extraordinary technique, he traveled to America in 1928. His first performance at New York City's Carnegie Hall was positively electrifying. Performing on the stages of Europe and the United States prior to World War II, he earned a huge and passionate following. He once said, I am a general, my soldiers are the keys and I have to command them. Who said that? It was Vladimir Horowitz, a source of inspiration for generations of pianists and a delight for listeners. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson.
0: Thank
4: you for being a friend. Oh, look, I can accept the fact that he's gay, but why does he have to slip a ring on this guy's finger so the whole world will
5: know? Why did you marry George? We loved each other. We wanted to make a lifetime commitment, wanted everybody to know. That's what Doug and Clayton want, too.
2: Everyone wants someone to grow old with, and shouldn't everyone have that chance?
5: Sophia, I think I see what you're getting at. I don't think you do. Blanche, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you, Sophia. I need to go talk to them.
5: Fine, but I'll need an answer. I'm not going to wait for you forever. <laughs> I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am R I am R I am R U.
0: My mama told me when I was young, we are up on superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in a glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, babe So hold your hat up, girl, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way His God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret Just love yourself and you're sad I'm on the right track, I was born this way. Ooh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Baby, I was born this way. Ooh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Baby, I was born this way.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and now part 2 of Storytellers with Rich Valenza from Raise a Child. Within our ever expanding LGBTQI+ community, There are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. So today in studio, we have Rich Valenza, founder and CEO of Raise a Child, founded in 2011 to make the process of fostering and adopting easier for the LGBT community.
2: There are... Over 440,000 kids in the U.S. foster care system. Every year, there are more kids coming into the system because of the opioid epidemic.
1: Speaking of the opioid epidemic, you have a nephew in central Pennsylvania who started out in environmental law, but soon ended up kind of intersecting with the work that you do. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came to be?
2: So it's really kind of an amazing story. He he was the pride of our family, you know, our first kid in the family uh, to become an attorney. And he wanted to study inv- environmental law, as you said.
1: You become a lawyer, or a doctor, everybody's so proud of you all of a sudden, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: <laughs> a couple of years then after he graduated, he went to work for this small firm in my small town in central Pennsylvania And I went home and, you know, I saw him. We went out for a couple of beers and I said, you know, well, the family's so proud of the work you're doing. And he said, you know, Uncle Rich, we're kind of doing the same work. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you're in environmental law. He said, well, that's what I hope to do. But he said, each week the courts call all of our law firms in town and assign us a case, a family to work with. Because the family's running into trouble, mostly with the opioid epidemic. Kids are getting mistreated. They're getting neglected. They're getting abused. This is what's taking over my job. He said, I have so many cases now. And so you and I are kind of in the same business, trying to help out these families and these kids.
1: Here you have your nephew who's dealing with environmental law, but it doesn't matter. There is such a need that are hitting all the law firms saying, look, we need your help with this. With
2: this, yeah. And, you know, not only in the Rust Belt where right. where we're from, here in L.A., we have more kids in the foster system in the county of Los Angeles than the entire state of New York. And These numbers are growing here. The work that we do at Raise a Child is not only to get out the word to welcome people into this process, to share with them what the benefits are of building a family and getting them to think about becoming foster and adoptive parents, but it's also to support them through this process. And if it wasn't for my friends, my uh, LGBT friends who had gone through this, you know, 8, 10 years ahead of me, that when I had questions, and it's that gift that they gave to me and my family to help us stay on track is the gift that Raise a Child tries to do for everybody that comes on board with us. Because we understand that, you know, the recruitment, when I first started, I went to see a a woman that started a, a foster family agency. And I said, I have so much to learn from you. I said to her, when is it that After a family adopts, do you go back and ask if they want to adopt again or foster again? And she looked at me like, are you out of your mind? She said, once you give them a kid, that's it. They don't want to hear from us again. What we're finding, especially in the LGBT community, is that our families are coming back again because they have this down and they have the support through not only what we can provide them, but through a network of their own family and then other LGBT families that they are strong families and they're taking kids in to foster or expanding. I can't tell you how many LGBT parents now have uh, their second kid, many third, fourth, and fifth. There's one family that just took in a sixth kid. And, you know, that's not me. But (laughs) but (laughs) that's amazing.
1: Yes, God bless it. And let me tell you, I'm going to introduce you to my nephew and his husband. They live just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Ah. That's where I'm going for Thanksgiving. And within the course of a year, they got married and adopted two children. Now, they went into it initially thinking they were going to adopt one child. They got the call. And well, we have a brother and sister for you. Without hesitation, they said yes. Now, you've also partnered with the North American Council on Adoptable Children. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization?
2: So that organization, along with HRC, Human Rights Campaign, they have a network of agencies that they work with, foster and adoption agencies. So they're not, we don't have agencies in exactly all 50 states yet, but we have agencies in many of the states who are willing to work with LGBTQ people. There is a push lately with this administration in Washington that is all into religious liberties, allowing these agencies to receive federal funding from taxpayers like you and me, and yet allowing them to discriminate against LGBT people. But it's not only LGBT people. They can discriminate if you're Jewish and you're not If you're
1: not the right religion. If you're
2: not the right religion, if you're not the right color, if you are a unmarried couple, and this happened to my niece and her husband now in Richmond, they went to a religious uh, faith-based foster agency and they wanted to adopt. And it's the church that they go to. And they said, we're sorry, you come back when you're married.
1: This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with CEO and founder of Raise a Child, Rich Valenza
2: if we're discriminating against single moms and single dads and all of that, there are so many women out there whose husbands have passed away that have done an exceptional job at raising their kids. The reverse for for fathers. There's LGBT people who gave birth in a marriage and then later came out and We have no business discriminating when there's over 440,000 kids in the foster system. We need every good parent to step up, and we need to celebrate and support every great parent to do this work.
1: Absolutely. The, The ripple effect of those kind of discriminatory practices harms everybody. Now, the nuts and bolts of your organization, as of 2018, Raise a Child was serving a growing database of over 8,200 current and prospective foster and adoptive U.S. households. Where's that number today?
2: First of all, you've done amazing homework on us. Thank you,
1: (laughs) thank you. Our our mutual friend, Dr. Kim, Ah. would be very proud. (laughs) Dr. Kim is a former boss of mine, full disclosure, and an ongoing consultant for Raise a Child. And she is a a major factor in bringing us together and making this conversation happen today. So we're both very grateful to her. Yeah. So. Where is that 8,200-numbered database? Has it grown since
2: then? It's grown since just a couple of years ago. We're now at 13,000 people. That's a considerable growth. Oh, it's unbelievable. So we're adding staff, and soon, you know, if anyone is interested in maybe working in this field, take a look at our website or our social media because we're looking to hire.
1: Over the end of this year, 2019, and going into 2020, depending on when an individual hears this particular conversation, of storytellers? If somebody's interested in getting involved with Raise a Child, either as they're interested in adopting or fostering or being a part of the organization in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, how can they do that? How can they reach out?
2: So our website, raiseachild.org, has all of the information. Our phone number is 323-417-1440. But The website you'll find there where you can register if you're looking to learn more about fostering and adopting, or you can donate, or there's volunteer opportunities in early December. We have a number of events all over. L.A. County going on. And these are free events. And we have Alec Mappa, the, the comedian, actor, foster, and adoptive father. He will be there doing a little bit of his shtick.
1: A great uh, spokesperson for Raise a Child, Alec Mapa, wonderful entertainer He's and a wonderful father. A wonderful father.
2: And we meet you at the door with, you know, a glass of Prosecco or, you know, bubbly water or whatever your, your thing is. To calm your nerves, because I remember what it was to go into one of these meetings and how ill at ease people are. So, we want to get through that and really talk to people to their heart and expand their minds about these kids and, and the family that they can create. So, we try to take good care of people right from the very start.
1: I tell you, Rich, I think we are kindred spirits because you give me the greatest lead in <laughs> to something I want to ask you. And so, with that in mind, sure. about calming nerves. What would you say, as a final word here on Storytellers, with Rich Valenza, the CEO and founder of Raise a Child, what would you, Rich? What would you, Rich Valenza, what would you say to someone considering fostering or adopting to assuage any doubts or worries that they might have?
2: What I like to say to people is, If you don't have those kind of nerves about stepping forward, if you aren't wondering what kind of parent would I be, then probably we don't want you. Because we want people who are going to question, did I do the right thing for this child? Did I say the right thing? I go to bed and I think, oh my gosh, did I just say something that my kids are going to be damaged for for the rest of their life? Many parents, the, the homes that these kids are coming into the foster system from They have parents that don't probably think like that or don't know to think like that. We want compassionate people. We want people that can think outside of the box that is themselves and think about what they can do for other folks. So yes, I totally understand if you're nervous. I totally understand that your doubts about everything. And, you know, remember, I didn't tell a soul what I was doing because I knew what they would say. But Luckily, I found my way with my family and with my partner, and Raise a Child is here to help you find your way. So, yes, bring your nerves, bring all of your concerns, bring all of that, and let us show you the benefits to fostering and adopting.
1: Everyone is welcome at the table.
2: Absolutely.
1: At Raise a Child. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us today.
2: Hey, thanks for this opportunity.
1: You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story?
4: Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Hard Nut by Mark Morris, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. What would Christmas be without the Nutcracker, or in this case, its campy counterpart, the Hard Nut? The ballet premiered in Brussels in 1991 and was created by openly gay choreographer Mark Morris. The Hard Nut doesn't take place in Victorian times, but in 1960s suburbia with a subtle gay subtext. Instead of toy soldiers doing Battle with the Mice, there are G.I. Joes. The waltz of the snowflakes number includes male dancers and tutus, throwing 20 pounds of confetti snowflakes per show, followed by a strong duet with Drosselmeyer and his nephew. Men and women dance on point, including the prissy housekeeper, a drag queen who nearly steals the show. It's pure fun, just like the holiday. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Autumn Reinhardt Simpson.
6: Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you.
5: Hi, this is Margaret
6: Cho, and you're listening to I Am Are You.
0: My mama told me when I was young, we were all born superstars. She rode ahead and put a lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause it made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say No matter gaze fate or bi Lesbian, transgender life I'm on the right track, baby I was born to survive No matter black, white, or beige Shola or we are mate I'm on the right track, baby
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Don Bacardi is a legend. Steve Pride sat down with him in the Santa Monica, California home that he shared with partner Christopher Isherwood for three decades. The film
6: Cabaret was based on the adventures of Christopher Isherwood, as chronicled in his Berlin stories. So in the sequel, I suppose we'd learn our hero left Sally Bowles and Berlin... For sunny Santa Monica, where he lived until his death in 1986, with portrait artist Don Bacardi. They were the toast of old Hollywood, with Isherwood toiling over his screenplays and Bacardi sketching everyone from Vivian Lee to Betty Davis.
5: Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Well, uh, that was a milestone sitting for me because she was a big movie favorite of mine, and it was made possible by Roddy McDowell, who invited Chris and me to dinner one night with her, and he told us she was coming, so I brought a catalog of my work. And after dinner, I showed her the catalog, and uh, she started going through the various drawings, and something said to me, she's not impressed, I'm going to lose her. And then she came to a drawing of Maggie Leighton, Margaret Leighton. And she paused and said, Oh, you've drawn Maggie. And I knew then that I'd hooked her because uh, she was a very competitive person. And she and Margaret Leighton had appeared together in the first production of Night of the Iguana. And I think Davis had felt that Leighton had bettered her. And so she was very competitive in anything that uh, Leighton had done. She was determined to do better. Ginger Rogers. Well, she again was another important figure from my early movie going
1: Nothing's impossible, I have found When my chin is on the ground I pick myself up, dust myself up Start all over again
5: She seemed to me the epitome of a glamorous movie star. Lots of makeup, long blonde hair, a very movie star personality. Yes, she was fascinating to me. But really one of my toughest critics because rather than defend herself... As a woman who wanted to appear at her best, she criticized my drawings as a fellow artist because uh, she really was quite a good draftsman and also a sculptor. Uh, she, She had quite a bit of talent. And she had a definite theory that her face had certain proportions that were immutable and her length of measurement was a finger. And every time I did a drawing of her in which uh, she saw something that she thought was unflattering, she would go into this, what she called the calibrations of her face. So I suggested that we measure the drawing and i had a little ruler in my equipment bag and she and i agreed what would be the equivalent of one finger on the ruler and we measured out the drawing of her i did and you know it was exactly according to her calibrations and that righted her she didn't have a comeback Uh, she was proven right and so she couldn't go on criticizing the drawing so she then signed and dated it and and I got away (laughs) without any more criticism.
1: And God is my witch I'll never be hungry again.
5: Oh, I was very thrilled to work with Vivian Lee. She was a stunning-looking woman, and she was such a charming personality. But now there was a restless uh, creature, and she gave me fair warning. She said she defeated some of the best portrait artists of her time. And I know the difference uh, from all my experience. When somebody is moving around because they don't want to, to be caught, they don't want me to look closely at them. But with Vivian Lee, she was helpless. She couldn't be still. And after I'd done several drawings of her and felt that none of them really were successful... She then made a superhuman effort for her, and she sat for at least 15 minutes, and I did my only successful drawing of her, and it was such a strain for her that I could see beads of sweat break out on her forehead. But she was really trying, and that, that's what was so sympathetic about her. She wanted to help me. One of your more frequent subjects was Christopher Esherwood, who was your partner for many, 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 many years. 33 years. We met when um, he was 48 and I was 18. And in fact, he was responsible for my becoming an artist.
6: Was that difficult? You're very young and
5: you're with someone who is very famous to emerge from that shadow. Well, that gave me extra impetus because he was uh, a distinguished writer I felt that I had to have something that I might be distinguished for. And that just goaded me to work all the harder.
6: In the 1950s, in one of your
5: journals, you wrote, I am not taken seriously as an individual. Well, yes, you know, I think every young man longs to be taken seriously. And, of course... With Chris, I met all kinds of uh, friends of his, many of them very distinguished. And yes, it made me feel that I wanted to have some kind of identification as an artist, too. And uh, as I say, that just made me work all the harder. Tell me about Christopher Isherwood. What was he like? Oh, he was the most charming man I ever met. What was uh, wonderful about him was his genuine curiosity about people. He wasn't faking it. When we met, he asked me all kinds of questions about myself. Until I met him, I'd never known anybody to take such an interest in me. And he was particularly interested in young people and young men in particular. And he wanted to know what their lives were like, what it was like to be them, what they were interested in. And you can always tell when somebody asks you questions, whether they're just making conversation, whether it's just idle curiosity, or whether it's the genuine article. And his was genuine. What was the gay side of Hollywood like in the 50s? Oh, there were clubs and bars. And, of course, they were very dangerous because they could be raided at any moment and often were. And um, a certain bar would emerge and be very popular and people would flock to it. But most of the bars lasted only a very short while because uh, they were soon raided. And once they got a reputation for being raided regularly, they, they couldn't last. But uh, while they did last, they were very exciting because it was dangerous. And and everybody who was there knew that uh, maybe that night uh, the place would be raided and they might even be arrested. So that gave uh, the experience uh, a very decided edge. I assume you wouldn't see the tab hunters and the Rock Hudson's out and about. Uh, oh, not, not at gay bars, No. Hollywood people did go, but I think it was out of bounds for actors. I mean, that was just courting disaster, but uh, people behind the scenes, directors and writers and cameramen, could go to bars. Being gay in in Hollywood, I really had uh, an extraordinary experience because I had, through Chris, access to uh, so many of these uh, major Hollywood personalities And that was exceptionally lucky. And uh, it was possible because Chris was a distinguished British writer. uh, So we did have access to all kinds of parties that ordinarily uh, I would never have been asked to, certainly not without Chris. And um, we were often uh, the only queer couple in a sea of Hollywood celebrities. At least the only clearly queer couple. And there was really no way of disguising who we were, what our relationship was. We couldn't pretend that Chris was my father. And uh, we didn't take uh, women with us to cover up. That would have been absurd and not at all Chris's style. So it was just on his credentials as a distinguished British writer that we would tolerate him. But at that time, it was an act of
6: bravery. Most people would have marriages of convenience, or New York marriages, as they're called.
5: Charles Lawton and Elsa Lanchester were our next-door neighbors, and they became very good friends. And in fact, I think both Lawton and Lanchester were in love with Chris. And I think they even tended to quarrel over him. I think each wanted him for themselves. And in fact, Charles bought the house next door to us in order to be closer to Chris, and also in order to have a private place to which he could bring uh, the young man that he was very much infatuated with at the
6: time. I'm Steve
5: Pride, and we're talking to
6: writer, artist, activist Don Bacardi.
4: What good is sitting
0: alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old
5: chum. Come to the cabaret.
6: What was... Your take and Christopher Isherwood's take on Cabaret.
5: Well, uh, we became good friends with Michael York, and we both thought that he was very good casting for Chris. Chris, of course, his attitude to Cabaret was understandably resistant to the adaptation of his material. For instance, uh, the Chris character is invariably made uh, bisexual, even in the Van Druten play. I am a camera. Uh, There's a suggestion that Chris and Sally are lovers. And, of course, that's very much uh, against Chris's original. But he tried to kind of be (laughs) broad-minded about it. And also he felt that as soon as Sally is made into not only a a singer in a cabaret, but a performer of of, uh, really expert know-how, that the character of Sally goes out the window because she was essentially an amateur. And Liza Minnelli belting away, she would have been the toast of Europe. And that's not Sally Bowles. He was very much in favor of the casting of Minnelli in the part. But once he saw her doing these first-rate numbers in the film, uh, he felt she was totally removed from Sally. You're quoted in a
6: book on gay widowers by Eric Guitares as saying that after the death of Isherwood, you transformed yourself and underwent a complete role reversal in the relationship that followed.
5: Yes, well, it was a very peculiar experience for me. First of all, reaching the age uh, that Chris was when I first met him. Of course, he seemed so much older and he was distinguished and from a another generation, uh, another country. And suddenly, I found myself the very age he was when I met him, and that was very significant. And he was still alive then. And then after his death, I found myself gradually being put into the position of being the older one of a couple. I met a young man, fell in love with him, who was 26 years younger than I was. And I suddenly found myself cast in Chris's role. And it was very illuminating for me because it gave me all sorts of insights into situations that I'd experienced with Chris and I suddenly, for the first time, began to understand how he must have felt all those years before with me. And so it was a continual kind of communication with him because I was understanding aspects of his experience uh, really for the first time. And also, his example was very helpful to me because often when I had problems with my friend, I would ask myself, how would Chris behave in this situation? And do you know, I always got an answer. And it was often very, very helpful to me asking Chris's uh, advice. This has been a conversation
6: with portrait artist Don Bacardi. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
5: Dark and
0: cold was the night you came told you to go but you stayed anyway you held your finger to my trembling lips you said come in close kid I won't let you slip you said hush little babe hush little babe it's your favorite song stop all this boss and boy there's nothing wrong cool and swift like a bird we flew into the sun. I can love, I can love, I can love and be loved Haunting me in my dreams you fly I feel your chill when you pass by I try to catch you but you slip ahead then I wake, it's another day And I'm safe in our bed And you say, hush little babe, hush little babe It's your favorite song Stop all this fuss and Boy, there's nothing wrong Morning in my land, Soft in your eyes The light of the sun The light of the light That's how I know I can love I can love I can love and be loved There were storms in my cup, but no one could see And ghosts in my head holding court just for me But you breathed in warm, and I breathed in hope, now I know
1: But we still have a couple of minutes, which is enough time for a last word. And tonight, that's an autobiographical audio essay from Steve Pride about his first job and first love at the happiest place on earth.
6: Once upon a time, a long time ago, I fell in love with Peter, Peter Pan. Full of myself and fresh out of high school, I was working in a major Orlando theme park, a place where the rodents wore pants. Me, I was Snow White's prince and somewhat charming. It was an easy job that involved starry-eyed devotion to a pale, pasty-skinned girl in a severe black wig and being stalked daily by seven vertically-challenged co-workers each one wearing a heavy costume topped by a huge fiberglass head, each head with blank eyes and a frozen smile, a precursor to West Hollywood happy hours that lay waiting in my future. The previous Peter Pan had been an androgynous lesbian whose adherence to the Stanislavski method acting approach to the portrayal of cartoon and two-dimensional characters had led to her odd conviction that with hope, faith, and just a little bit of pixie dust, she could fly. Perhaps she could. However, apparently not from a second-story balcony at Pinocchio Village House. Luckily, the bodies of several small children broke her fall. Anyway, I was good at being the prince. I had the uncanny ability to always keep the part in my hair aimed directly into any oncoming breeze, thus consistently achieving a windswept look over the less desirable state of muss. And being prince had its perks, including the occasional e-ticket and contemporary resort room key thrust into my innocent hand by a handsome tourist confused by our corporate ride policy, if perhaps not my own. On break, most of my coworkers peeled off their fiberglass character heads and rubber masks to reveal a sweaty, disheveled mess. No matter how attractive they may have been at the beginning of the day, with each hour they spent in the hot Florida sun, I looked better and better in comparison. What more could I want from life? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Oh, yum. So when the new Peter Pan emerged from character wardrobe, I lay in wait outside. At first glance, I knew he was the pixie for me. His little green polyester wash-and-wear tunic, his little green Peter hat at a rakish Peter angle, the stubby little rubber Peter Pan dagger, he was brandishing in my direction. Do you believe in fairies? He inquired. Oh yeah, I replied, oh yeah. And at that very moment, I knew what must be done, and the sacrifice that I must make. Management was perplexed by the request, but still reeling from the ugly episode of the flying lesbian and incoming lawsuits, quickly granted my insane wish. The narrow rubber mask pinched my delicate face in painful, yet still unpleasant ways, The Hook frightened small children, and the older ones delighted in punching me in unfortunate places. But as Captain Hook, I was near my Peter, and more than anything else, I wanted Peter. We met in Fantasyland. He pulled out his stubby little weapon, and I pulled out my long, long, long sword and we battled past teacups into Tomorrowland. We fought our way across Main Street, past Liberty Square, through Frontierland, and found ourselves deep into Adventureland. Exhausted, we collapsed on the roof of the Pirates of the Caribbean, behind a faux wall, bracing faux cannons, firing faux cannon shots. And in this private spot, he asked me again, do you believe in fairies? Several hours later, our revelry was interrupted by a low-flying tour helicopter, but not before I truly believed I could fly, and that Never Never Land was a housing development somewhere south of Orlando. Unfortunately, my affair with Peter Pan did not last the summer. He quickly proved himself a jealous little minx, obsessed with my harmless friendships with Sleeping Beauty's Prince Philip, Mowgli, the Jungle Boy, and Bert from Mary Poppins. But no matter what he said, or what you may have heard from Tigger or Pooh, I was never caught by the Queen of Hearts doing something inappropriate in the entertainment shower room. Especially not with that sweet little Christopher Robin. And if I was, well, it was entirely innocent. And Miss Queen of Hearts, I think some evil queens just take their role too seriously.
1: We know you have choices on your radio dial, and we appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks go to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution Vosh Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI Community Affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email us at volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcasts on YouTube. Good night. <laughs>